Chapter 4 Every Jot and Tittle Among Christians today, there is a great disparity of opinion regarding what place, if any, the Old Testament scriptures should have in our lives. Some fervently declare that those scriptures have nothing whatsoever to do with us because we are New Testament believers. They almost avoid them like the plague, and they have their favorite New Testament verses to prove their point of view. There are other Christians who are still attempting to live by some of the rituals of the Law of Moses, even though the fulfillment of about 80% of the Law of Moses requires a temple and a functioning priesthood. They have been taught that they should fulfill at least part of the rituals, even though they do so in a way that differs from how God ordained through Moses that they should be fulfilled. They believe that this will somehow be acceptable and even pleasing to the Lord. They are trying to live in and by the Old Testament. I would like to present here a biblical balance between these two extremes. The Role of the Old Testament in New Testament Lives First, we need to recognize some facts. The Old Testament scriptures were the only scriptures that Jesus had and used during his earthly ministry. Then, for between 50 to 80 years after the cross, they were the only scriptures that his church had and used while the New Testament scriptures were being written and finally recognized by the church as inspired scripture. Those early Christians had an amazing revival and the vibrant new life they experienced by following only the Old Testament scriptures should be confusing to modern Christians who label those scriptures as the dead letter. Maybe they reach this conclusion because they have never examined the Greek meaning of the words Paul used for dead letter. If we could go back to Christ's church in the book of Acts and tell them that the Old Testament is of no value and not applicable to them, we would immediately be labeled as very dangerous heretics. The Apostle Paul preached the gospel to the Jews in their synagogues throughout much of the known world using the only scriptures they had, the Old Testament. In 2 Corinthians 3.6, Paul wrote, Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. In the church today, the belief regarding the meaning of the letter killeth is that Paul is referring to the Old Testament. Is that what Paul was referring to? In 2 Timothy 3.15, the same Greek word translated as letter in 2 Corinthians 3.6 is translated as scripture. The Greek word simply means writing. The writings of both the Old and New Testaments quoted or preached without the Spirit bring death. But when the Holy Spirit speaks the Scriptures, they bring life, regardless of which testament they come from. Proof of this is that the members of the church that Christ founded after the cross had incredible life flowing through them as they preached the Old Testament Scriptures under the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote to Timothy about the Old Testament scriptures. From a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.15 Of course, the only scriptures that existed during Timothy's childhood were those of the Old Testament. 
What Paul says those scriptures can do for us is powerful, and yet some say that they have nothing to do with believers today, nor do they have any spiritual value for us today. They had incredible value throughout the known world as the Lord's disciples preached those scriptures during the first century after the cross. In the next two verses of Paul's letter to Timothy, he wrote, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. He had just spoken about the scriptures that Timothy knew as a child, and surely when he refers to all scripture, he was not saying, all that exists today except for the ones you had as a child. To believe that would border on the ludicrous, especially since Paul's letters and the rest of the New Testament were not even recognized at that time as scriptures that had been given by inspiration of God. That recognition came many years later for most of the New Testament writings. So, according to Paul, what do the scriptures that Timothy had accomplish? They are profitable for doctrine. No wonder there is so much doctrinal confusion in the church today anywhere that the Old Testament has been rejected. All the doctrine of Paul and the other New Testament writers was based on the only scriptures they had, the Old Testament. It is certain that we cannot properly understand the doctrine of the New Testament if we do not understand the message of the Old Testament. Paul seems to indicate this when he says that those scriptures are profitable for correction and for instruction in righteousness. Paul tells us that all scripture has been given by God. It was not given by men. Paul was obviously referring to the Old Testament scriptures that God gave to Israel, his people. Is what God gave to his people in the Old Testament no longer a divine message? It was the word of God? But is it no longer his word? Paul tells us that those scriptures are profitable to bring the man of God into perfection and all good works. No wonder there are so many bad works in the church today, especially among the youth. The youth in many churches today are deeply involved in fornication, pornography, and many other evil works. Even some pastors justify looking at pornography. I know of cases where pastors counsel women of their congregations when they come to them for help because they are devastated to discover that their husbands are looking at pornography. The pastors tell the women that they should not be jealous if their husbands are looking at other beautiful women. What Jesus says is that if a man looks on a woman with lust, he has already committed adultery in God's eyes. Matthew 5:28. Does it no longer matter what the Lord thinks about us, His opinion? The women were rightly troubled by what their husbands were doing, because adulterers will end in hell, and those pastors were paving the way to hell for the husbands of those wives. Maybe they were doing so because so many pastors are also looking at pornography and see no problem with it. According to multitudes of surveys over the last few years, most pastors regularly look at pornography themselves. The different surveys have shown that between 60 and almost 90% of pastors look at pornography on a regular basis. Those who do so will end in hell 
unless they conquer the sin that Jesus said they are committing, adultery. Jesus reveals how the Old Testament applies to us. Jesus declared to his people, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. What are jots and tittles in the law and the prophets? A jot was the eighth letter of the Greek alphabet, iota. But Jesus was not speaking in Greek. He was referring to the tenth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. A tittle is a small mark that is above a Hebrew letter. In modern English, we could say that not one letter or comma would be eliminated from the law or prophets until all is fulfilled. In other words, every small detail of the law and prophets was inspired by God and has a fulfillment. How does this work out in New Testament life? Paul gave us insight into this when he wrote, For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? 1 Corinthians 9 9 through 11. This is an example of a very small thing in the law of Moses that has a practical significance for the New Testament believer. As we saw in chapter 1, Colossians 2, 16 and 17, is a tremendous confirmation of how the details of the law have practical applications for the life of the believer. Paul wrote, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. All of these details in the law are a shadow of things that were going to come to our lives if we are in Christ. They are not things that have been done away with. Jesus fulfilled in his life and spiritual walk all the shadows that are found in the law of Moses, even to the jot and tittle. He fulfilled it to the letter and comma. The Sabbath is an example. In Hebrew, the word Sabbath actually means rest. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 explains that the Old Testament Sabbath was a shadow, and Hebrews 4, 9 and 10 explains how it is fulfilled in our lives as New Testament believers. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Obviously, this passage is referring to the Sabbath, rest, that God instituted on the seventh day in Genesis 2-2. Paul explains that our own works are the works of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, Galatians 5-19. God's goal for each of us today is not that we merely cease from these works one day each week, 
but rather that we cease from them every day of the week. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath was one day out of seven, but in the New Testament, the Sabbath is a daily life. If you are tired of the way you live and what you are, you can find rest in Jesus Christ. He says to you and to all of us, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. In every case regarding the jots and tittles of the law, our life in Christ will fulfill them, but in a much more glorious way than how they were fulfilled under the law. However, if we don't understand the shadows, we will not truly understand the fulfillment of the shadows, and we can easily arrive at false doctrines and false conclusions regarding our life in Christ. A Glorious Example of the Shadows Found in the Law In Old Testament times, God dwelled between the cherubims that were part of the mercy seat that covered the ark. Inside of the ark were two tables or tablets of stone upon which God had written His law. The ark that God's presence dwelled upon in the Holy of Holies was the most important piece of furniture in His dwelling place. The New Testament declares that we are His temple or dwelling place, 2 Corinthians 6, 16. Also, in 2 Corinthians 5, 1-4, Paul tells us that our bodies are the tabernacle in which we live and also in which the Lord lives. Then, in Revelation 21, 3, a voice from heaven confirms that we are God's tabernacle. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. The word tabernacle in Acts 15:16, where the tabernacle of David is mentioned, comes from the same Greek word translated as tabernacle throughout the New Testament. In other words, we are called to be God's tabernacle, just as David became his tabernacle. However, we need to discover from the Bible the design and characteristics of the tabernacle that the Lord will be willing to choose as His eternal home or dwelling place. Since the Old Testament tabernacle is symbolic of a person in whom the Lord dwells, what does the Ark of the Covenant symbolize? It behooves us to understand its message, since it was without question the most important piece of furniture in God's dwelling place and the only piece in David's tabernacle. To find the answer, we must allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. In the Bible, the Holy Spirit uses much symbolism. Most Christians know that a rock is symbolic of Christ, 1 Corinthians 10, 4, and that water is symbolic of God's Word, Ephesians 5, 26. However, to discover what the ark represents, we need to discover the symbolism of the materials that it is made from, as well as what was placed within it. Those materials are wood and gold, and the tables of the law were placed within the ark. In many places in the Bible, trees are a symbol of people. A very clear example is Isaiah 61.3, New King James Version. To console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, 
that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The ark was a box made of wood. Wood comes from a tree, person, that has been cut down, stripped of its branches and bark, and sawed into boards. The actual tabernacle proper of Moses was made of wooden planks that were ten cubits high, one next to the other. But, since we are God's tabernacle, the wooden planks must represent people who have known the work of the cross to bring an end to what they are so that they will become a dwelling place for what God is. Gold is symbolic of God himself. Job 22, 24, and 25, New King James Version. Then you will lay your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks. Yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. The ark was a wooden box, but covered with gold within and without. Exodus 25:11. The New Testament gives us a clear revelation of what the ark symbolizes in our lives. The ark was inside the tabernacle. Therefore, it is a shadow of something within us, because we are the Lord's tabernacle. Where within us are the tables or tablets found on which the law is written? Paul tells us, Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. 2 Corinthians 3.3, New King James Version. So, the ark symbolizes the human heart in which God's laws are written. Hebrews 8.10 confirms that in the New Covenant, God writes His laws in our hearts. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. There is an enormous amount of truth revealed in the ark regarding our hearts, the Lord, and our relationship with Him. The covering for the ark was of pure gold. This covering was called the mercy seat, Exodus 25, 17, and 21. It was made from one piece of gold, and from that same piece, two cherubims with their wings extended were beaten out of it, Exodus 25, 19. The literal presence of God dwelled over the mercy seat between the cherubims. Psalms 80, 1. The Glorious Truths Revealed in the Ark God has given us a wonderful promise regarding the ark. He said, There I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Exodus 25, 22. He promises to dwell upon our ark, that is, upon our hearts, and have communion with us. He has placed all of His commandments within our heart if we are part of the new covenant. However, as the Bible tells us, we all sin. From time to time, we all fail to obey Him as we should. Judgment should fall upon us from a holy God, but between the tables of His law in our heart and his awesome presence over our heart is the mercy seat. 
This is what the psalmist was referring to when he wrote, If thou, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. Psalms 130, 4 and 5. Every year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies and sprinkled blood upon the mercy seat. Leviticus 16, 14. The blood of Jesus is what purchased God's mercy, and it is God's mercy seat that covers us and keeps us from facing the judgment we deserve in the presence of a holy God. In light of this, we can well understand why the Lord exhorts us, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Proverbs 4.23 The inverse is obviously true also. Out of the heart are also the issues of death. The price of the mercy seat was infinitely high. The Creator became a man and took upon Himself our sin and suffered the consequences for sin in our place. His sacrifice and suffering were surely symbolized by the process required to make the mercy seat. First, a great fire was used to purify the gold and then an untold number of hammer blows were required to form it into a covering, and at the same time to bring out of that piece of gold two cherubims from either side. But what about the ark itself, a wooden box? As we have seen, Wood speaks of the person who has experienced the work of the cross to bring an end to their fleshly life, which is their natural man, symbolized by a tree. The process for God to make us into a dwelling place for His presence also involves a very unpleasant process to our flesh. Jesus said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Luke 9, 23 and 24. The Apostle Paul wrote, I die daily. 1 Corinthians 15, 31. What does it mean to deny ourselves? One major issue in self-denial is submitting to the process of being conformed to the Lord's image. Romans 8, 29. Jesus was the Lamb of God, and a lamb is known for its meekness, which is revealed when it does not demand its rights in this life, nor does it resist when it is mistreated. Jesus revealed this nature, as Isaiah 53, 7 expresses. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Jesus told us that he wants us to learn of him. He explains the primary lesson that he wants us to learn in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. When we go through life demanding respect, demanding our rights, and not allowing others to offend us because of our pride, 
we walk a difficult road in which we are very often laboring and are heavy laden. When a yoke is placed on an animal, it means that the animal is going to engage in some work. Taking Christ's yoke upon us means that we are going to be involved in a different type of labor. He explains the type of labor that he has ordained for us. It is to learn of him, and the main lesson that he wants us to learn in this present life is his meekness. When we stop demanding our rights, answering back to those who offend us, and striving to reach a higher place in this life, we will find rest for our souls. His yoke is easy because we are pulling a load downhill toward the low place instead of uphill toward a high place. The low place is where the lowly one is waiting for us in order to dwell with us. Isaiah 57, 15 Learning Christ's meekness is one of the major issues in being changed from a tree into the wood that the Lord can use to build his dwelling place. If meekness is not yet revealed in us, it is because we do not yet know the Lord. We might know many things about the Lord, but we do not yet know the Lord if we have not yet learned some degree of his meekness. May we all respond to the Lord's exhortation in Zephaniah 2, 3. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Our wood must be covered in gold. People are not interested in seeing the beauty of our wood a life that has embraced the work of the cross and has been crucified with Christ. What people want to see and what they need to see is the beauty of the Lord, not our crucified life. So, he covers the wooden box, called the ark, within and without with gold, his nature. He wants our heart to reveal his life and not our life that has embraced his cross and died to our flesh. Speaking of the bride of Christ, the psalmist writes, The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. Psalms 45, 13 She is glorious within, and her outward covering is of fine gold, his nature. Therefore, as believers, we sometimes suffer great blows from the divine gold worker's hammer which might make us feel like everything is going wrong in our lives. At such a time, it is vital that we recognize the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and submit to that work. He is forming the covering of gold for our heart, which is God's ark and His dwelling place within us. When we are going through the fire and feeling the blows of the hammer of the Lord, he is giving us the opportunity to follow the Lord's counsel. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Revelation 3:18. It is then time to encourage ourselves and recognize that this is proof that we are on the right path and not proof that the Lord has rejected us. Hebrews 12:6. One of my favorite verses and also my wife's is Psalm 66:12 Thou hast caused men to ride over our heads we went through fire and through water but thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place
Sometimes God even causes men to ride over our head, our authority and position, so that we have the opportunity to reveal His meekness instead of resisting. My wife and I have often seen that when the Lord wants to bring us into a new and greater blessing, many times the first step is a test on meekness. When we accept mistreatment from others without rising up to defend ourselves, He will always bring us out into a wealthier place, both spiritually and naturally. May we see that every offense and injustice that others cause us will move us into a greater measure of God's love, mercy, and blessing if we do not displease Him by our reaction that reveals pride instead of meekness. So, God sometimes uses unkind words and actions from others to prepare us for greater blessing. Will we see those people as a source of blessing instead of rising up against them? The wonderful jots and tittles of the law that are revealed in the Ark of the Covenant are examples of how each detail of the law reveals glorious spiritual truths and secrets for the New Testament believer. This is why Christ and the New Testament church could be blessed with great revival, great understanding, and pure doctrine long before the New Testament was available.